This is podcast 113, and it is entitled The Two Geralds. And you've heard from the first Gerald in the musical cue you've just heard, which is called Radio Source. And it is the uh, opening uh, music in the action of the 1962 movie Cabinet of Caligari, or as the English actress continually seems to be saying, Caligari, in the movie which was scored by the first Gerald, Gerald Freed. And I'm going to try to um, connect the two Geralds in whom one finds oneself interested uh, these days because they both exemplify a fascinating and, to my way of thinking, um, important insight on communication and particularly on communication of the spiritual life and of the subrational and divine and often um, hidden from view uh, speech that we are attempting to put vainly into words and yet keeps hitting us in all sorts of formats and expressions in our life. And the two Geralds are Gerald Freed and Gerald Heard. And these men whose contexts and uh, areas of uh, interest seem to have diverged so professionally, in fact, lived very near one another in uh, reality for many years. But I don't think they knew one another, but I don't know that. Gerald Freed was born in 18... I lie. Gerald Freed was born in Brooklyn in 1928, and he's still alive and living in New Mexico. And he was sort of... Um, brought out to Hollywood by his friend Stanley Kubrick. They knew one another from growing up in Brooklyn, and Gerald Freed wrote the score for The Killing, very early Stanley Kubrick, and then Paths of Glory, and uh, was able to deliver the goods. And through this sort of rare stroke of friendship, good luck with Stanley Kubrick, he was then asked to uh, score a number of cheap B horror films and sci-fi films, uh, actually all of which are quite good. And uh, he looks upon affection, these um, uh, B-movies, and that's where I come in because I learned about Gerald Freed sitting in a movie theater in 1962. And he was brought in to uh, do the score for The Lost Missile, which is a very downbeat and unusual science fiction movie. Cheap, but very unusual. And then uh, one that was called uh, The Curse of the Faceless Man that is notorious about a Pompeian mummy who seeks his lost love in the form of the American uh, student Tina Enright. That's her name. And uh, it's a tremendously good film if you see it now. It's not anywhere near as bad as people say or as we, we used to say back then when we wanted to try to defend our interest in front of our parents, our 11-year-old boys. We would say, well, Mom, actually, it's surprisingly good. That was always the phrase we would use. It's surprisingly good. Well, Freed not only scored Curse of the Faceless Man, but he scored a, a really terrific movie called The Cabinet of Caligari. And that is a loose remake of the famous German expressionist classic, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And um, Cabinet of Caligari, made in 1962 by Americans, is really about a, a, a woman who's had a complete nervous breakdown and seeks help. And finally, in connection uh, with her um, uh, a wonderful 
analyst, more than an analyst, finds help, but not more in any kind of negative sense, more in only a good way, is able to confront her demons, as we say today, and come out the other end as a healed and whole incredible person. And in this odd movie, which without the music would be good but not very good, but with the music actually is very good, albeit a little bit lame in the execution, and you'll see, it's you sort of guess about five minutes into it, you guess what the sort of central backstory is, but um, the music makes it horrifying, vivid, and finally very powerful. And I played to you the sort of uh, jazzy kind of music that the young woman is listening to uh, in her car at the beginning of the film, which I remembered and loved, and you had to hear it. Now, um, Freed wrote that, and then he wrote the score for a movie called The Vampire, which is an excellent little sci-fi horror film, which is surprisingly good, as we used to say. And then The Return of Dracula, which is surprisingly good, with an excellent Dracula, played by Francis Lederer. And I think it was filmed in Bronson Caverns at the end. It's really good, <laughs> at least in my view it is. And um, then... Uh, um, the uh, other one is called I Bury the Living, which is a great title with a fantastic visual by some guy with a name like Vorka Pichek or something like that. And uh, a score by when you hear it with its, uh, with its um, harpsichord, you'll never forget the soundtrack for that. And they've all been released recently on beautiful CDs from Film Score Monthly. Now, my point is that Freed is a composer in the popular Hollywood idiom of the irrational. And his music, which I'll play an extended segment of at the end of this broadcast, but you'll have to listen to one and a half minutes of nothing to get to the important part when all hell breaks loose in the mind of Jane Lindstrom, the character in Cabinet of Caligari, as she has her great polytonal, atonal, dissonant breakthrough. He believed Freed was quite conscious, and he got this a little bit from his instinctive gravitation towards Bartok and the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, and he said all this. He was very articulate, is very articulate composer. He went to Juilliard, was so, as we say today, classically trained. Um, don't we say that about Lissa Gray, Joe Meek's great soprano, that somehow blesses her that she's classically trained, as opposed to Joe Meek <laughs> or any number of other people. But Freed wrote this about his music uh, in these movies, uh, to which his musical uh, uh, approach was so uh, perfectly suited. He said... Um, um, Freed describes it as a collection of dissonant piano flourishes, striking six- and eight-note motifs, and heavily concentrated counterpoint. He says, quote, I use the dissonances, he's speaking of The Cabinet of Caligari, 1962, with Glennis Johns and Dan O'Hurley, with a script by Robert Block and directed and produced by Roger Kay. Freed describes it, I love the dissonances to get the audience to feel the distortion. Nothing so obvious as, when she's mad, the music goes atonal, but subliminally, that is what I would do. Then he would take her point of view and make it more romantic and even nostalgic. But when she sees Dan O'Hurley, the psychiatrist, from her point of view, he's a cruel monster. There I was taking her point of view, and therefore dissonances, polytonality, and atonality are good ways to show this. I generally use dissonances in composing that way. And this is the key quote, sort of from a mockingbird point of view. Uh, the reason 20th century composers are so effective to our ears is because we understand about the downside of life with our so-called sophistication, Freudian and so on, and they're a necessary part of the musical perspective. Even Beethoven has famous dissonances in his symphonies when he was going mad and he was angry at his deafness. Now, anger, the subrational, the libidinal, the 
the id, uh, these are carried over in his astonishing scores, particularly for, and I really commend them, the vampire, which is when the, when the vampire erupts, he's an otherwise normal guy, Dr. Beecher, played by John Beale, who played a reformed Protestant Presbyterian clergyman with Catherine Hepburn in a movie much earlier called The Little Minister. And now in 1957, he plays a doctor who becomes a vampire because of a a pill that he mistakenly gets from his daughter. It's a long and very sad story, but when the vampire erupts onto the scene or into Dr. Beecher's conscious life, Freed carries that so beautifully with these incredible attacking trumpet repetitive chords that are dissonant. And now in the breakthrough of Jane Lindstrom in Cabinet of Caligari at the end of this broadcast, you'll hear the same, but even stronger. Now, this is fascinating, that the musical language of the subrational... Well, now, let me carry this further to the second of the two Geralds. I've been talking about Gerald Freed. Now we're going to talk for a minute about Gerald Hurd. Now, Gerald Hurd, whose real name was Henry Fitzgerald Hurd, was, um, came from a very well-established and ancient Anglo-Irish family, <clears throat> and yet his father was a clergyman in the Church of England, had become a Church of England clergyman and a rector in Bath, and I've been to the parish more contemporarily, where Gerald Hurd's father was the rector for many years, and apparently was a very tough customer, and forever set his son Gerald's um, appetite away from Orthodox religion, Orthodox Christianity, I should say, because of his father's intense and harsh evangelicalism. I don't know the truth of that, but we know the, the, the empirical results of it, definitely. Hurd could not shake Christianity, and he wrote many, many books about Jesus, about, about six, and I think I've read at least three, two and a half of the six books I've read, and they were published very limited editions and are very hard to find, except in internet editions now through Whipfenstock. Thank God for Whipfenstock, who will deliver us. But we find Hurd uh, wrote a number of books about Jesus and was a kind of mystical Christian thinker of polytonal sympathy in California with Aldous Huxley and Bill Wilson of AA and a number of others. And he was a very interesting character, often referred to with, as sort of the first hippie or the godfather of the New Age. But when you actually find out about him, he's a man who came out of a Christian background, was deeply impressed by Jesus, but was also very unimpressed by the format that it had taken in his own natural personal family life. And he sort of was a deeply religious man who had to find a way. Now, one of the ways he found, and this is what's interesting about him, and it ties him together with the first Gerald, Gerald Freed, Gerald Hurd found another way to express his spiritual understandings that was non-assertive, non-propositional, and non-rational. And that's what makes him interesting to me as a person, to me as a non-rational being, who is also uh, very much absorbed with rationality, and uh, with all of you who are preachers who are trying to get through to people. Because I've often said in this cast, um, this series of podcasts, you cannot get through to people rationally. If you've tried, you've failed. I, I can just look at you straight in the eye, straight in the ear, and say that if you've tried to get through to someone, whether you love them or not, anyone, purely through the reason, you have failed. You might have thought for a minute that you had succeeded, but the facts did not bear that out. That is an, without exception. But you can get through to people through this subrational, because people are in fact governed by their subrational, by their feelings, by their heart, not by their head. And yet, and yet, 
the head can in fact be governed by the heart, and the heart is very open and very accessible if a way is found in, because everyone's bleeding, and everyone's needing help, and everybody wants to be saved, whatever form or words you want to give that, and whatever kind of language you want to put on that, everyone is looking for another way, they want a new life. Now, I want to know what love is, I want you to tell me, foreigner, on whose worthy shoulders their great and greater son, David's great and greater son, Steve Perry, Neil Schoen, and Journey stand. Now, Heard found a way to express sub-rationally or non-rationally ideas that he put less successfully in rational terms. And this is what he did. Beginning in about 1941, but I'm certain it came earlier, he began to publish mysteries and weird tales. That's the current word for it, but I think he used that word. Supernatural tales, short stories, not horror stories, that's not the right word, but weird tales or stories verging on the strange, the fantastic, and the supernatural. In 1941, Gerald Hurd, living as he did in Los Angeles, began to write fiction. And his fiction he wrote under another name, which is often happens. Montague Rhodes James, the greatest of all ghost story writers, in my opinion, um, was a Cambridge Don, and later after that the Provost of Eton, uh, who was a distinguished scholar of earliest Christianity and whose edition of the New Testament Apocrypha I'm holding in my hand, and it's one of my great treasures. <coughs> Wish it were signed. But... Um, a man who made his living, as it were, in the scholarship of the um, uh, much later New Testament period, and yet his claim to fame, who's heard of him? We've all heard of him, because M.R. James wrote ghost stories, ghost stories of an antiquary. He wrote stories which have been almost, many of them filmed, many of them televised. I, I, I can g- just give you chapter and verse, but this is not about Montague Rhodes James, known as M.R. James, ghost stories of an antiquary. This is about Gerald Hurd, Henry Fitzgerald Heard, a, a gentleman. He went to Gonville and Keys and was very much a gentleman in background, although a, I would call him not a wealthy, not an aristocrat, but a highly educated gentleman's background in those terms, in the terms of 1889, and he wrote mysteries and horror stories or supernatural stories. He wrote A Taste for Honey in 1941, which was a huge success. I wonder why he wrote them. I haven't been able to find that out. Why did he write all this? While well, he was also becoming kind of a Christian, um, I would, we would call it an interfaith Houston Smith kind of a monk. Why did he write all this? Why, under the influence of Krishna and the Upanishads and the Buddha and Meister Eckhart, most of all, and St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, why did he write mysteries? Was it to make money for his, um, his community? I suspect it was, to be honest with you, but he, he was extremely good at it. And the taste for honey, which is about beekeepers in, in a remote part of England, turns out to be a great Agatha Christie-type sci-fi mystery, and it sold hundreds of thousands of copies. So he made money, especially in England, The Taste for Hundy, and it was actually made into two film versions, one with Boris Karloff as a sort of made-for-TV movie in England, uh, and the other, which I've recently seen, starring Susanna Lee, my new neighbor here. Um, uh, Susanna Lee starred in The Deadly Bees, directed by Freddie Francis, which is not really very successful, but is sort of good, and they're right on the screen, based on a story by H. F. Heard, and you'll find all sorts of reviews of a taste for honey throughout the literature, and nobody knows, or very few of them recognize the fact that the beekeeper interested in the um, entomology of bees um, was in fact the um, Christian um, interfaith mystic living in Trabuco Canyon near Los Angeles. They
they were the same person, a taste for honey. And then he wrote uh, something called um, Reply Paid in 1942, also a mystery, Murder by Reflection, Doppelgangers, and The Notched Hairpin. Now, these are all, um, several. at least three of them have to do with a Sherlock Holmesy character. I think it's Sherlock Holmes' smarter older brother, Mycroft, and they're kind of the early edition of um, Conan Doyle sort of rematches. You know, there's a whole genre of, of would-be Sherlock Holmes imitators, which are sell very well. <clears throat> and uh, A Taste for Honey is sort of in that category, but from 1941, and it's terrific, and it was a huge success, and all of them were. But... He also, both in 1944 and 48, published groups of short stories. One is called The Great Fog and Other Weird Tales, which you can order on an internet edition over the internet. And it has two unbelievably monist, powerful, serene, happy tales. One is called uh, Dramanon, and one is called uh, Despair Deferred, which is one of the most unusual stories I've ever read. If you you read none of them, read Despair Deferred, dot, 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 question mark. It's about a subject which is really post-9-11 hysteria. How do you, what is the real um, inner game of tennis of post-catastrophe or possibly even therefore pre-catastrophe hysteria? Uh, And he takes a spinster teacher in a boarding school who lives on the coast of England in the face of the imminent invasion of the Germans in 1941 that never comes. And how do you uh, keep a, a point of absolute alertness to a catastrophe that 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 you're living in uh, expectation of, and it never actually arrives. And what does that say about real despair? The despair which the character actually had with her in the deepest and most terrible way, long before the emergency, simply exacerbated the despair. And what about the relationship of crisis to reality before and after crisis? A, a Taste for Honey is post-9-11 writing, sorry, uh, the story Despair Deferred in the Great Fog is post-9-11 writing at the most uh, insightful pitch. I can't recommend it highly enough, together with Dramanon. And then I want to fi- finish with, before I make my larger point, in 1950, he wrote a novel, which I've just read in full, a long novel, it's almost 300 pages, called The Black Fox, comma, a novel of the 70s, when he means the 1870s. And The Black Fox is a tale of a cathedral close during the closing years of Disraeli's uh, prime ministership of uh, the prime ministry of Benjamin Disraeli, and it's about a bishop a dean and two canons and their various wives and families and others in the small and <clears throat> extremely artificial but very, very mean and waspish, and I mean that in the sense of a wasp, zzz, the waspish environment of a cathedral close in the mid-1870s and how the presence of a highly dualistic and malicious agenda begins to take over a member of the cathedral community that achieves a very, very dark and occult um, um, entrance, folding into the mix of what is already profoundly divisive and the wrong kind of Christianity at every kind of level, which is resolved in an astonishingly positive and powerful and humble Resolution. I cannot um, recommend enough the novel The Black Fox, partly because it 
it really does tell the tale. Where did he get this? Well, you know, he had lived in a rectory for a long, long time. He'd obviously had extremely close exposure to the lives of bishop, deans, cathedrals, parishes, and dioceses. And his understanding of diocesan abstractions, bad feeling, and jockeying for preferment among people in the church, um, he understand, and yet trying to always bless it by different kinds of sentimental names, which only cover up what is really going on, and finally is really revealed. Uh, the Black Fox is as discerning about lives in um, the uh, Anglican Communion uh, or Anglican Churches set up in its formal and traditional manner, and not so traditional manner, I might add, in The Black Fox, uh, as you'll find in Trollope, because it is so in the service of a much higher metaphor. Now, this brings me to the final point. I want to talk about metaphor. Why did Gerald Freed, the first of the two Geralds, express so brilliantly something in non-rational ways? Well, all you need to do is listen to what I'm about to play you, and you will be drawn right into the heart of your own personal hell. Whatever you've been avoiding, dear listener, whatever you and I have been avoiding in terms of confrontation with that which is basic and crucial and unbelievably urgent, 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 emergency, urgent, 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 emergency. Well, there's Farner again. Bless him. Bless him. Him being Steve Perry, that worthy uh, person on who stood on the shoulders of Farner. Well, there's an urgency to everything. Everyone has an urgent problem, and most of us are putting it off. And that's why occasionally in a sermon, let's say you're seeking help, and you happen to go to a church because you think, maybe I'll find it there, and you find your way in the Sunday 8 o'clock communion, or now Eucharist, as it's universally called, but you go to the 8 o'clock communion service, and hoping for something deep, and what do you get? You get talked at, talked down to, uh, or even at at its best, please, Mr. Minister, say nothing. Just read the 1928 service, or write one. Please, God, please, God, write one. Because at least there's something in contact there with contrition and remorse and truth in the inward man. There's something there. There's something about the comfortable words. Please give me something. Please send me somebody to love. Eight o'clock communion. Well, you probably won't get it, unfortunately, although I so wish you did. But we're looking for something because there's an urgency, urgency. (laughs) And so we find we go to a sermon and what the sermon touches us, when it does occasionally touch us, when it's not eight points to this or six points to that or some form of didactic talking down to uh, or flaky non-prepared statements, what it really is 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 some kind of coming out of the unconscious of the preacher in a perfect world, the real feelings of the preacher, not in an embarrassing, sentimental, or self-justifying form, but somehow the preacher's in touch, and these great texts allow him or her to be in touch. And notice I say both because women and men can do this equally, and yet it's so rare. And something touches your unconscious, and it's almost always a story. It's the tone of the preacher's accessibility, her emotional accessibility, which is rare. It's rare in life, coupled with an illustration which may, in fact, quote, resonate, end of quote, with your own experience. People constantly come up to me and said, I like the sermon when you... I used to always think I had to sort of add some kind of assertion at the end to kind of bless it, even if I'd ended the real high point of the sermon with some illustration or some association or some rock song or some poem that I wanted to read that spoke to me. And yet that was it, because when I gave people the freedom to respond 
um, intrapsychically to some kind of material that was above and beyond the assertive or the propositional. I allowed their own inner help to find its their need to get help. The, the, the God that is trying to help them would be touched by the helping word from me, often through a mediated form, a story, and that would do it. And that would be, remember the story when you talked about da-da-da-da? Or when you mentioned this, or when you talked about a woman who had lost da 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 da, or a man who had been caught da 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 da, or a child who had lost, or a child who had been da 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 da, or an elderly lady who lay dying and who thought da 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 da, who was resisting that and that, or somebody who was denying this. Well, that's where it always was. The power. Now, that's what Jesus did. Now, how would Jesus Christ have titled his mystery stories? Well, he did. He titled them parables. Consider the lilies of the field, they neither spin, but I tell you, Solomon in all his glory, the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Um, I have a story to tell you about a man who went out to sow some seed, and he cast his seed here, and he cast his seed there. There was a man who had two sons, a rich man who had two sons, and one of them came to him and said, Father, I... Then the disciples would take him aside, and they'd try to get this sort of, um, they'd try to kill it. They'd try to say, tell us exactly what it was in, in propositional terms. And every so often he fell for it, as teachers often do. He fell for it. He should have said, I'm going to tell you. The, you you'll, 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 you'll understand it when you're ready. There are probably a whole bunch of listeners out there who understood it better than you lot. But then he would tell them, well, this is what I meant by the certain kind of soil and another kind of soil and the weeds. I meant this and I meant that. And, of course, did they understand Lest understand, lest hearing, he understand not. Did they understand? No. They were just as foolish and silly and lost and uh, completely caught in their own veils as anyone else. I'm getting tired. You know, it's interesting. This is heavy material. And I'm finding as I speak, I'm getting a little exhausted. So it must be tying into something that I really am feeling deeply. I'm talking about the, the way you communicate truth through the illustration, I must feel under some kind of pressure or some kind of guilt for not being assertive enough or at least propositional enough or expositional enough. But look, this works. It worked with Gerald Freed. When I talk about going into the heart of your personal hell, you're going to hear it in just a few minutes in the title entitled Breakthrough from his Music for Cabinet of Caligari, 1962. You're going to hear your personal hell in nonverbal forms, and it's going to, it may throw you over the edge, and I kind of hope it does. It did me. It can me. When I talk about um, the black fox, you're going to see yourself in the black fox. You're going to see yourself in the, in the clergy who, who are constantly um, talking a good game but aren't really being healed. Their deepest hurts and needs and longings are not being healed. And as a result, they're getting, they're all becoming, like what Huxley says, they're becoming aged fetuses. Instead of becoming grown-up men and women, there's actually one grown-up woman who's really the hero of the whole thing. Uh, But uh, the men are sort of overgrown, aged fetuses. They're getting worse, not better. And... uh, uh, what you're going to find is that the, the way you get better is through, through the, the resonance with the healing power within, within us all, which is trying to find a way and is constantly being cut off. The, the, it's in a box canyon of propositional rationalization, which is always at the, really at the, at, the, at the beck and call of the ego. Whatever you want to say propositionally, it's all... I mean, Cranmer said this, you know, the, the heart, the, the, the reason just finds, justifies what the heart has already decided to do. So you've got to get through to the heart, and then everything will take over. And with Heard, if you get through to the heart, as in his song, his, his, his brilliant story, which is in The Great Fog and Other Weird Tales from 1944, Despair Deferred, if you get in Miss Potts' heart, and, and Miss Potts, 
is ministered to, she is changed wonderfully and to her great surprise. She is surprised by joy and despair deferred. Uh, the same goes in others. And I think that the black fox is a long version. Why did they have to communicate in that way? Because uh, you have to communicate subrationally, libidinally. You have to find that way. And Freed finds it, and Jesus Christ found it in the parables. Consider the lilies of the field. I tell you a story. There was a man who... <laughs> there were two sons. Who do you think did better? Show me the... Which image is this? So therefore you answer me. He doesn't answer them. You answer me. Caesar... Or this world's, or God, rather, Caesar. Interesting, I find myself getting exhausted as I say this material. Obviously, I'm dealing with this subrationally. Well, I hope you got something out of this. The two Geralds, Gerald Freed, born in 1928 and still kicking, still wonderfully alive. Gerald Hurd, died in 1971. Jesus of Nazareth died and rose in 29 or 33 or 31 A.D., and that's all I have to say. I'm glad I came under the wire here. And now, listen carefully. You'll have to listen for one full minute and a half before all hell breaks loose for you and for the poor and ultimately not poor but saved heroine of the cabinet of Caligari. Thank you and God bless.